guess I should have got this before service. It'll be all right. Did you get the mic? Oh, I did not get the mic. Tell me if you did. Do you need the mic? You hear me all right? I have a well-projecting voice, so I may not hear you. All right. I think I'm we'll thinking old school today. You okay? Let's throw back 50 years. Okay. How about that? All right, y'all can go ahead and uh, find your mark in your Bibles for Luke 14. Luke 14 this morning. And uh, I'm doing like a short series on obedience. And uh, and no, I'm not laying out all 613 Old Testament commands. <laughs> and uh, I'm not saying that you have to obey all those. I'm not even, you know, I love the Ten Commandments and they should be obeyed, but that's, I'm not even looking at the Ten Commandments and showing you how to obey those. I'm really looking at this, uh, the, this bigger picture of what obedience is to God and uh, kind of looking at, you know, what is true obedience. And we last week we looked at what true obedience is and that it, it comes from the heart and that's the truth of the matter. And so we're trying to look at obedience to understand what it looks like to live a self-denying, cross-carrying life, as Jesus says in Luke 9, 23. Like I said last week, looked at true obedience that comes from the heart, and that there that this true obedience that comes from our hearts is not an attitude of uh, cheap grace or taking advantage of grace so that we can sin more, or, or taking advantage of grace uh, so that we can just have Jesus when we want Him and throw Him on the side the rest of our lives. Uh, in fact, we looked at it in Isaiah one that really it's about this all-in attitude for God and this all-in attitude for God's people, and. This radical faith in the gospel that empowers us to obey and to live faithfully and obey wholeheartedly. And today I'm going to kind of move on. We're going to look at the impact and the cost and the consequence of our obedience because there's a lot of consequences for our obedience. And uh, the fact of the matter is that if we are truly obeying Christ and we are truly obeying the word of God, there is going to be resistance and there is going to be cost. And today what I want to do is see that uh, there's demand, and uh, it, it demands our lives, actually, and, I, and that metaphorically and literally, we're going to find out that uh, that uh, obedience is demanding. And today, I want us to really look at, I want you to remember these three words, and it says, count the cost, count the cost, okay? So Luke 14, 25 through 35, so 25 through 35. Y'all beat me there. All right, verse 25. This is the word of the Lord. It says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and his mother and his wife and his children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, he is not able to finish. All who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what about a king, a king who is going out to encounter another king in war, whether he is able with 10,000 men to meet him who comes against him with 20,000 men? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. And so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall it become salty again? 
It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile, and it is thrown away. So he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Go ahead and pray. So our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for this good book right here, Lord, this book of instruction, but not just a book of instruction, but a, a life-giving resource that you have given us, Lord. And so we take your word seriously. And I pray that you would uh, let your word speak and that your spirit would speak through me and I, not of myself, but nothing be of myself, but let it be purely of you. So in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Okay, I want you to think about a, a charismatic figure that you've witnessed in your life. Um, someone who is able to rally people to his base, rally people to his side, probably strong in speech, probably powerful in his demeanor, manages to grab people's attention. I can think of a few people right now. You probably think about probably politicians, NFL coaches maybe, maybe college coaches, certain preachers, for me even, or celebrities, something like that. Uh, I can think of one right off the bat, and that's the 45th person. That's Donald Trump. I can think of someone who's very charismatic to us and who's someone who garners a lot of attention and a lot of support um, and who gathers a huge following. Has Just think about has this huge sway over people, okay? And uh, his words just bring people in and his actions bring people in. And so that's kind of the same picture. That's kind of a weird analogy, I guess. But in Luke 14, we kind of get the same picture, picture of Jesus. So up to this point, what Christ is doing is he's gathering a huge following. Um, he's a very verified first century influencer. Do you know what an influencer is? You heard that term? That's a term thrown around in my generation. We call it someone a social media influencer. I mean, someone who is in the public has a lot of sway over others. Jesus is a first century influencer, okay? And uh, his name and his work and his teaching is uh, it's spreading throughout the countryside. It's spreading throughout Judea. His ministry is really taking off. And people are asking, you know, have you heard of this teacher, this healer, this this miracle worker? This some people are saying this is the savior of the world. Some people are saying this is Israel's savior. He's going to defeat. He's going to defeat Rome. He's going to rescue us from slavery. And for good reason, they think all of this, and they they say all these good things for good reason. They follow him. Uh, a few chapters before, what did Jesus do? He fed the five thousand people. He's got quite a crowd following him. He's healed the blind. He's healed the lame. He's healed the sick. He's done all these wonderful deeds, and so of course he has a following. And he's not using silly marketing ploys or catchy gimmicks, or he's not he's not scamming anybody out. He's not cheating anybody out. He's not lying. It's all authentic. And this kind of leads us to Luke 14 right here. And I, the climax of a story is the building point. It's the great, it's the highest point in a story. It's the turning point in a story. And uh, what this Luke 14 is is really an anticlimax. And this is kind of the anticlimax of Jesus' ministry. And he has a crowd, and, and, and he's got this huge following. He's got all this influence. He's got all this sway over their life. And he says something that's probably going to turn them off. Um, something <laughs> that's going to cause a lot of abandonment, something extreme, something um, actually that we're about to read is actually crucial Christian doctrine. And Jesus lays it out for us in Luke 14. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to take a verse-by-verse pick at this. I'm actually going to start at the end of the passage. And so we're going to start in verse 29 or 28 through verse 30. We're going to read it, and I'm going to try to kind of give you an explanation of what's going on here. Because when I first read this little metaphor Jesus used, I 
did not understand it, and then I was able to find it, get a hold of some good commentary, and it made a whole lot more sense. So verse 28. Which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build a tower and was not able to finish Kind of funny because last week I kind of used a similar analogy. We talked about if you were to, you know, buy a house or you're going to build a house and you lay a foundation, then you would kind of, you would, would you expect its property value to go up and you wouldn't. And uh, say you didn't count the cost of something, you didn't value the resources, you go ahead and you start laying a foundation of a house and, uh, and sure enough, you run out of money, you run out of resources and you're going to be a little humiliated and you're not going to be able to sell that place for anything. It's kind of the same situation going on here. So uh, building something recklessly is what Jesus is talking about. You would not go and build a tower recklessly. Jesus said you'd be a fool to go headfirst into something without doing one thing. You'd be a fool to go into something, run out of resources, run out of money, lose your employees, because all you have is a disorganized heap of brick and mortar with no laborers and with no resources to put it all together. And for a first century builder, this was... This was a high calling. This was a good profession. So a first century builder, for you to start something and to not count the cost and to not value your resources or your money enough and to just go ahead and build and start something and not finish would be extremely humiliating. In fact, your career would probably be dependent upon what you have to build. Your reputation would be dependent on what you have to build. So you go out and you start a tower, you're not able to finish, and you built something worthless. This would be an incredible embarrassment. And you're supposed to prove your worth as a builder. And instead, you prove your ignorance, your arrogance, and your negligence in building a tower that you cannot finish. And like I said, this, this builder forgot to do one thing. He forgot to count the cost. And we see the same, we see the same exact thing with the other, uh, the other metaphor. In verse 31 and 32, it says, What king going out to encounter another king in war will not first sit down and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 men to meet the army who comes against him with 20,000 men. And if not, while the other is a great way off, he's going to send a peace delegation asking for peace. And so it's the same, same with kings. Kings got to ask some questions. Do I have enough troops? Do I know my troops? With what I have, can I gain victory? What's he going to do? He's going to weigh his resources. He's going to weigh his numbers. He's going to weigh his own ability as commander to see, can I win this battle? Because he'd be a fool to rush into a war and not know that he could win it. He has to first examine. He has to count the cost. He has to see if his men are up for the fight. Because he's already outnumbered two to one. So he has to see, am I able to win this? The king must count the cost. And so what our Lord is getting at here is he's saying, and he's telling this audience, this great heap of followers, these probably thousands of people that are following him around the countryside, he's telling them to do something. He's saying, count the cost. Count the cost. Do you really know what you're getting into? Do you know what this demands of your life? Are you really to, ready to follow me truly? Not to just follow me to get your bread, but to get living bread. And not just to follow me to find some medication for your illness or some medication for your disease. No, he means do you really want to follow me in search of a life that must first begin with death? That's what he's saying here. Christ says to count the cost of obedience. And I'll tell you, 
There are three central costs of obedience. Three main costs of obedience that you'll find in the scripture that we'll kind of find in this scripture. And the first of these, first cost is sin. We didn't read about that in the scripture, but I'm telling you it is painstakingly obvious in the gospels that that is one of the costs that Jesus makes clear. You have to give up something. And what Jesus is saying, the first cost of your life is I want. I want in terms of your sin. And this ties in with last week. We said that we must follow Christ with a whole heart. If we want to follow Christ with a whole heart, what do we have to give up? Our sin. That's, that, I mean, that's pretty simple. And that demands daily active repentance that flows into every day and every hour and every week of your life. And God demands that we love what he loves and hates what he hates. And Luke 13, 3 says, Jesus says, actually says that unless you repent, you too will perish. You have to give up something. There's a cost. Our addictions, our bad habits, our bad company that we hang out with, our pursuit of the flesh, our pursuit of the world. Self-gratification, too, can have no place in your life anymore. It has no place. You want to be a disciple, you have to hand over the keys. And you have to hand over ownership of your life. It's like you're sitting in the car. You can't be in the driver's seat anymore. You have to move to the back. And you have to let Jesus give him control. Romans 6 would say just the same. You're a slave to something. Jesus said, you're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to righteousness. And if you're not a slave to righteousness, you cannot be a proper disciple of mine. You cannot live obediently as a slave to sin. And so, your vulgar mouth, your lying, your cheating, your jealousy, your envy, your lust, your sex addictions, your adulterous relationship, they can't have a place in your life anymore. That's the first cost. So many Christians think today that they can keep some of what they have and still be a Christian. Or still live faithfully, live obediently. And that's not true. He says, you have to give it all up. He says, a whole lot of what makes you feel good cannot reside in your body because the righteousness of Christ now does. And the righteousness of Christ has no room for slavery and sin. So first cost is the I want. The first cost is sin. And being a good disciple means giving up your sin, so count the cost. Number two is a little more interesting. This is directly in the scripture. This is the most obvious. Verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, if you didn't know the meaning of this passage, you would think Jesus just said to do the opposite of what I just told you to do. <laughs> you would think Jesus just told me to hate my family, hate my friends, hate my relationships in favor of him. And I'm going to tell you right now, this is just an exaggeration. We use exaggerations all the time in our speech. Jesus is using an exaggeration of speech. And he's doing this to make a point super crystal clear. This does not mean go and cut your family off if they're not Christian. This does not mean go and murder your family because they're not Christian. In Christianity, no hostility and no aversion from people is required. In fact, it'd be the opposite. God actually says, prioritize your family, prioritize your relationships, take care of people, love your neighbor. That's not what he's getting at here is he's saying that when comparison to your love and your following of God compared to your family, it would look as if you hated your family because of how much you love God. That's what he's saying here. My own mom and dad are not Christians. They're not Christians. I don't think Jesus is telling me to go hurt, 
hate or hang up on my family. And he's not telling you to hate, hurt, or hang up on your family if they're not Christians. He's actually issuing a warning. He's kind of saying the opposite. He's saying, if you're a Christian, till death do you part. It could actually be your own family, your own friends, your own co-workers, your own acquaintances that will hate, hurt, or hang up on you. They might neglect you, disown you, be ashamed of you, and betray you. Okay? What's the audience Jesus is talking to here? Who are the people he's talking to? He's talking to Jews, right? In first century Judea, if you were a first century Jew, this really did mean exactly what he said. What you were doing if you were going to follow Jesus is you were forsaking the religion and the faith and the traditions of your forefathers handed down from generation to generation. In Jewish culture, you breathed, worked, and lived for family. It was awesome. Family was big. And if you were to become a Christian, like I said, you forsake your people. You'd be cut off. You'd be excommunicated. You'd lose your inheritance. You'd lose your home. You'd lose your relationship with your father, your mother, your brothers, your sisters, maybe even your own wife. And so no wonder, because this was so hard that Christ offered a reward. Okay? And we'll get into that later. You know, because you may lose your inheritance. You may lose your home. You may lose your relationships. But Christ promises that the reward is gaining an inheritance in his kingdom, a home in his heaven, and a relationship with his heavenly father. So overall, Christ is really just saying that the choice is going to come. It may come. And Jesus asks, who are you going to obey more and who are you going to love more? Me or them? Because true discipleship and true obedience and true devotion means that he comes first, right? His kingdom comes first. His righteousness comes first. His family comes first. And anything else, anything less, and you cannot be my disciple. <coughs> Let's get the irony out of the way here with the second cause. How many family members have you lost because of your faith? Probably not too many. I haven't even lost any of mine because of my faith. In fact, my family still supports me, even though my mother and dad are not Christians. They still support what I do. They, they are glad that I am doing something wholeheartedly. In the Brazos Valley, in the state of Texas, and lesser, but still in this country, you probably won't get your relationships lost. You'll probably still have them. You'll still have co-workers and good relationships with them. You'll still have friends and good relationships with them. You'll still have family and good relationships with them, most likely. But the promise is still very real, right? This may happen in your life. I promise you this still happens to our Christian brothers and sisters, everybody everywhere else. In Israel, it still means being cut off. And in China, it means being turned in by your family and military police. In Afghanistan, it means being killed by your family. Seriously. This is a reality. And the cost of obedience, the second cost of obedience is relationships. So count the cost. And our third and last cost of obedience that we'll find in the text as well. Verse 26 and 27, it says, like I said, if anyone does not hate their family, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Hard teaching. This is one of Jesus' hardest teachings, if not the hardest teaching. This is a tough pill to swallow. You're following Jesus around. You're loving this guy. You're following this guy. He's telling you to forsake all these things that you love, your sin, your family. And then he says your own life. And you're thinking, what does he mean? 
I can't even have my relationships. And he's saying, I can't even have my own life for myself. Maybe even unto death. This is, this is where people abandon Jesus. This is where most of his followers abandoned him at. This is the anti-mic drop moment, okay? The fan base is gone. And this is the point where people really begin to think this guy is crazy and not just good and not just God. So put yourself in this position. Because this is really what the first century audience was looking at. What if Christ said that you have to quit your six-figure job? What if Christ said that you had to sell your house that you worked so hard to build? And what if Jesus said that you had to give up everything in your life for something that you could not even physically see? That's what he told the rich young ruler, and that's what he told his disciples. And so what about us? First century Christians in the 21st century. Does that apply to you? I'm going to say no and yes. Okay? No and yes. I really think that when we fit the rest of Scripture into the context of this Scripture, you're going to find a yes and a no answer. Because maybe you do need to quit your job. Maybe you do need to sell your house. Maybe you do need to quit everything and go be a full-time missionary. Some of us have done it. Or rather, the point he is making is a little more complex and a little more hard to understand than we can think. Because maybe rather than quitting your job, Jesus actually says, you need to give up your job to me. And that in your job, everything you do, everything you work for is to glorify me and to live and to provide for society and to provide for others. Instead of working for yourself, you work for others and you work for me in your job. And maybe instead of Selling your house and giving up your house. Maybe that means God is actually telling you to open it instead. Maybe he's telling you to clothe the stranger, feed the poor, bring people in. Have that Sunday lunch. Have people over. And not to just welcome Jesus and Jesus' conversations, but to ensure that Jesus and Jesus' conversations are present in your home and that your home is a house for God. Maybe that's what he actually means. Maybe you need to change the atmosphere. So Jesus demands your own life, right? He says, I want everything to belong to me. I want you to give full custody over to me. And more than the physical or relational, maybe your own reason for existence belongs to him. Your goals, your pursuits, your ambitions, your motivations, your declarations of who you are belong to Jesus and are in line with what he and what his word demands and commands. He's just saying you don't control your life anymore. You don't control your life anymore. He gets the control. He gets the authority in your life. Like I said, you're not in the driver's seat. You're in the passenger seat. You're riding shotgun. That's pretty good, too. And so if that is true, you don't get what you want, maybe that means you have to change some things as well in your life. Maybe you have to change political motivations. Maybe you can't stake your identity on your politics. Maybe you can't stake your identity on your hobbies. Maybe you can't start stake your identity on these groups and these functions that you're a part of. Maybe you can't pursue that hobby. Maybe you can't pursue that career path because it does not line itself up with the kingdom of God and the mission of God. Maybe that does mean cutting your salary in half. Maybe that does mean losing relationships. And maybe if you cease to it, your obedience will really cost you your life. 
And uh, this is extreme saying. This is extreme for us to say in this country because we're so free to exercise our faith. It's very unlikely for us here. And because it's so unlikely for us here, we cannot comprehend what this means. Like I said, there are people elsewhere who know exactly what this means. And really, the point for you as people who don't have to face such persecution and oppression is just saying, just be ready and just be willing to. It probably won't come, but there may be a time when what you believe, your faith, in your if you're seriously obedient enough to God, this may be the demand, this may be the cost. And uh, 10 of 12 disciples came to figure that out. Church history says that, you know, they found that out in the Colosseum. They found that on a cross. They found that out burning at the stake. They found that out being speared and stoned and strangled. And so many others, so many thousands and millions of Christians from the first century to the 21st century, even today, even today. But the good news is, I'll kind of end on this, is that we're not alone, right? Um, I'm making a mission to preach the gospel in every one of my messages, or else I think what I said was worthless. And so I'm going to kind of show you the gospel and all this. Because it just so happens the same God who said that you have to deny yourself, that said you have to take up your cross and say that you have to follow him, did the exact same thing first. What Christ did is he denied his own position, his own position in heaven, and he came down and he gave up his own power. And where he had to give up sin, the truth is he never had to give it up because he never had it. He was without it. But when saying the cost of obedience, telling you that you have to lose your own family and your own friends, he was no hypocrite. He knew this more really. or He knew this reality greater than anybody else did in this world. He was cut off from his own people. Isaiah 53 speaks about it. He was cut off from his race. He was cut off from his blood. And when he says, you must lose your own life, he was no stranger to death either. He was no stranger to death. And he was obedient to the will of God to save the world to the very end. He's the pioneer of self-denial. He is the pioneer of cross-carrying. He's the pioneer of following God. He's the first. And his obedience got him tortured and nailed to a tree and murdered. And so he counted the cost, right? This is where I kind of want to get to next week. He didn't just count the cost, though, and we shouldn't just count the cost either. When you count the cost, you should also count the reward. Hebrews 12.2. Hebrews 12.2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance, despite the cost, the race that is marked out for us by God. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer of faith and the perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, he scorned its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So when counting the cost, look at this next week. Do you think, do you think it's worth it? Do you think it's worth it? Because you're diving headfirst into this when you're baptized in Christ. Is it worth it? Are you counting the cost? Are you seeing what it means? Because our hope, despite this cost, remains unshakable. They can't take away the hope. They can take away everything else. And while the cross means loss, dying does mean gain. That's the gospel promise. Do you know the reward? Do you know, like we'll talk about, the joy of obedience? 
We'll save that for next week. Now, I'm going to kind of end on this. It may be a little cheesy for some of us, but I kind of gave a lyrical representation of a hymn. I just spoke the words. I kind of want to do the same thing, and we actually sang it before communion last week. Um, there was this other preacher in the same time, in the 17th and 18th century. His name was Isaac Watts. And you may have heard of him. He played a huge role in the evolution of Christian worship. You can thank him for a lot of those songs in there and the way that they're sung and their melodies. You can thank him for it. But he was most well-known for pinning a certain hymn that I think is the greatest hymn in all of Christian history. Words that have cut into my own heart and have meant a whole lot to me. And uh, Charles Wesley, who wrote over 6,000 hymns, said that he would have given up all 6,000 of the ones he wrote to have just written this one. And Watts penned these words, and I kind of want to let them serve as our prayer. I'm going to let these words serve as our prayer before, before we sing and go to communion. It says, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count by loss and pour contempt on all my pride. And see from his head and his hands and his feet sorrow and love flow mingled down did ere such love and sorrow meet, were thorns composed so rich a crown? And were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small, this love is so amazing, that so divine, it demands my soul and my life, my all. Charlie? Chapter number 722, 722. Let the beauty of Jesus be seen. All of this wonderful passion and chill. 